Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scriptures all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. This lesson is out of sequence with the others, as it was several weeks ago when class teacher Doug Brady taught this lesson on Easter morning, 2023. But the content is excellent and helpful as we consider what happened on that weekend in Jerusalem when Jesus went to the cross, rose again on Easter morning. You will enjoy this lesson from the Believer's Bible Class. The class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we gather together in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. The class continues to grow week by week, and we are blessed with a teacher who carefully studies and prepares for these lessons. If you are in the area, we would love to meet you, so stop by at the Lavorne Hall. We meet at 9.15 a.m. each Sunday morning. We look forward to seeing you soon. Well, I see Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible class. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. Today we're going to have a little different kind of Easter lesson today. We're not going to go the usual route. Yes, we'll talk about some things that have to do with Easter. Sacrifice, resurrection, but well, we're going to look at it in the form of emptiness. You see, last week, we considered the consternation in the Garden of Gethsemane. We witnessed the heartache of betrayal, the pain caused to our Lord when His closest friends and compatriots deserted Him, one of whom betrayed Him. The upcoming emotional upheaval when the rooster crowed twice in Peter's eyes met those of the Master we considered last week. I wanted us last week to try and feel alongside of our Lord what was transpiring in His heart. But now we need to turn our attention to His sacrifice and a consideration of the concept of emptiness. You know, at first blush, if we think about this word emptiness, normally we think of it as a bad thing. Whether it's your water glass, or your car's gas tank, or the, your energy reserves. Emptiness never seems to be a good thing. But I'm going to show you today that emptiness can be a good thing. But it could also be a bad thing. But before we start, let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that you will be with me as I speak today. You help me to communicate exactly what you want communicated. You'll keep the distractions away and you will allow me to share this message in a way that's pleasing to you. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to teach your word and I pray that I will be faithful today in doing so. 
I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I want us to read a passage out of uh, 2 Corinthians 5. We want to talk about sacrifice because without sacrifice, there can be no remission of sins, no payment of sins, no justification for the sinner. And we're going to start in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all of these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, when I first read that verse several weeks ago as I was preparing a lesson, it seemed to me that verse 21, the last one, was just kind of an add-on. That it didn't really fit into the context of the other verses. Or maybe it was just intended by Paul to be a transitional passage to the next chapter. But I have to confess to you, I was wrong in that analysis. This is a verse that stands on its own. It should be read by itself. Let's read it together again. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we read this verse, Jim Boris, it should startle us. In fact, it should even cause us to tremble at what it's describing. This is not a verse to read quickly and then to pass over. Let's start with us. Prophet Isaiah summarized the human condition in this way, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment that is in the sight of God. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This phrase, filthy garment, describes something that is gross and repugnant. And it's gross and repugnant to God. Let's look at a place where he uses that same uh, description again. It's found in the book of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah is talking about a fellow named Joshua. Not the Joshua who led the people of Israel into the promised land. But instead a man whose name was Joshua and who was high priest at the time that Zechariah was a prophet to Judah and Israel. Now, we need to understand that the high priest is supposed to be the most prominent believer in all of Israel, the one closest to God, the one who gets to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. He's in a special place. But Zechariah is describing a scene from heaven. And he is using 
Joshua as an example. And he says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. That is the one who's judging. And the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. And Satan standing at Joshua's right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel of the Lord. This verse, speaking of Joshua, says that even though he was in an exalted position among God's people, he was considered clothed in filthy rags as he stood before the Lord God. This man Joshua is not the only one. It seems to me one of the most righteous men, human beings, to ever live is the Apostle Paul. He was amazing in how he lived for Christ. But even the Apostle Paul, who labored greatly to be righteous before his God, realized that his most strenuous efforts to please God were no more valuable than refuse or, or dung. You can find that in Philippians 3, 4 through 10. You see, the plight of humanity is that we can never satisfy God's standard for righteousness. But the miracle of God's mercy is that God exchanges our filthy garments for robes of righteousness. Look what happened to Joshua in Zechariah 3, 4. He, that is the angel of the Lord, spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to them, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes, that is robes of state. In this awesome exchange, the repulsive garments that Joshua was wearing were replaced with heavenly robes, festal robes. Now look back at 2 Corinthians 5.21. In this awesome exchange, referenced here in this passage, God placed the sins of humanity squarely on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Does that mean he placed the sins of Mao Zedong and Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin? I could probably name a few more from our country, but I'm going to refrain. He placed their sins, along with mine, squarely upon the shoulders of his son Jesus. Jesus became so identified with our sin that the scripture said God made him sin on our behalf. The Holy Son of God could not do possibly more than that. Experiencing the Father's wrath upon that sin which he bore would have been more painful to endure than any human rejection or physical suffering Jesus experienced, in my opinion. We must never take the righteousness that God has given to us for granted and never take the forgiveness of our sin lightly. Yes, it was free to us, but it cost God a terrible price in order to forgive you and to make you righteous. And when God was finished with dealing with my sin, it left my sin ledger empty and uncollectible. You see, empty can be a very good thing. Let's look at a second form of emptiness. That sacrifice of God's Son 
left behind even more emptiness. How was he sacrificed? He was nailed to a cross and there left to die, a death that was horrifying, a death that was basically described as suffocation. But the next thing I want you to realize is that cross on which our Savior died is empty. He is no longer there. Now, that's not true in the thinking of some. Some will continue to hang Jesus on a cross, figuratively. They'll wear a crucifix, which still has Jesus pinned to the tree. Some will even see that crucifix as a tool or a weapon that can be used to ward off evil. But thank God our Savior no longer hangs on that cross. For judgment was passed and retribution was paid. And our cross should be a reminder, but should always be empty. Secondly, and even more importantly, the tomb where they laid him after his sacrifice for us was completed was found empty three days later. To me, that's the most wonderful empty of all. You know, the disciples were surprised when this happened, but I don't understand that. Jesus, from the very beginning, told them that was, was going to happen. In John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, he said this, The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? You see, Jesus had just overturned the money changers' tables in the temple, made a whip and chased everybody out, including their animals. And they came to him and said, on whose authority are you doing this? And Jesus answered them. They didn't just want an answer though. They wanted a sign, a miraculous event to show this. And Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, uh, it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now notice again, who is going to raise up that temple? He said in three days, I will raise up the temple. Is that what really happened? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, I think we need to call some witnesses to hear their side of this story to see what, what they can tell us. And the first witness I think we ought to call is a man by the name of Thomas. You see, after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to the disciples in an upper room where they were all waiting, probably scared, and then Jesus shows up. But Thomas wasn't there at that time. He was somewhere else. Well, shortly thereafter, as soon as Jesus left, they went to tell Thomas. And you find that in verse 24 of John chapter 20. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hand the imprints of his nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. What is he saying? He's saying, I want to see Jesus hold up his hands and I want to see the hole, the scar from that nail. But I don't want to just see it. I then want to put my finger there and I want to touch it. And I want to put my hand 
over his side where the spear entered under his rib cage, and I want to feel that scar too. Then I'll believe. But until then, I will not. Well, eight days after he made that fateful statement, Thomas was with the disciples in that same room. The doors were locked, the windows were shut, and then Jesus appears in their midst. It's found in verse 26 of that same chapter, chapter 20. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Now I'm, I'm convinced he turns and looks straight at Thomas because this is what he does. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now I'm convinced, although the passage doesn't say it, I'm convinced that this next statement by Thomas was made from his knees. For it says, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. There was doubt in Thomas before this event, but I am convinced there was no doubt in Thomas any time thereafter. That's why I called him first to testify. The second one I want to testify, or call to testify, is a guy named Saul. He grew up in a town named Tarsus. And he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He trained under one of the most noted scholars of all of Israel, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. And Saul of Tarsus was the biggest enemy of Christianity there was to start with. When they had the first Christian martyr, a deacon who was stoned to death, Paul officiated at his execution. His name was Stephen. And he was there when Stephen and Saul, Stephen, stoned to death. But there came a time when Paul took a road trip to a town called Damascus. Before he could get there, he met someone and he came to realize that that someone he met was Jesus Christ. He began to realize that Jesus was the Messiah, and He was His Lord God. Not only does this contain His testimony, but the testimony He's found from a number of others, and it's set out in 1 Corinthians 15. It starts in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul is saying, I know that Jesus has risen from the dead because I saw him with my own eyes. Now, I want you to really think about this emptiness in the tomb. Some of us have been to that tomb and we can attest that is empty. But there are many in the world who cannot accept an empty tomb. It never happened. It's not true. It's all a hoax, they say. Why can't they accept an empty tomb? Because if Jesus actually rose from the dead, if Jesus actually raised himself from the dead, like it says in John chapter 10, then he's God. And if he's God, then he has a right to control their lives. And they would by chance need to obey him. And they don't 
want to. It's as simple as that. And so they've come up with all kinds of explanation as to why the tomb is not really empty. I'm going to share six of those explanations with you today. And then we'll look at them one at a time. They say first the disciples went to the wrong tomb. They say secondly, the Romans secretly moved the body so that no one could steal it and claim that he rose from the dead. Thirdly, they say no, it was the Jewish leaders who moved the body, but for the exact same reasons. And then some say, no, the disciples stole the body so they could claim there was a resurrection. And then they want, there are some, they want to say, it was put in a book called the Passover plot, that Jesus was given a drug when he was on the cross and they put that sponge up to his mouth with the sour wine on it. And it made him appear as if he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. And then finally, they say all the people who saw him in the resurrection body were hallucinating. It was a mass hallucination. Are any of these explanations really plausible? Well, in order to do that, one of the things we have to do is we have to do an investigation and consider what facts do we know for certain are true. And I think these facts are the ones that we would know. Number one, the centurion who is in charge of the execution detail believed Jesus to be dead. Number two, the legionnaire who was responsible for breaking Jesus' legs if he was still alive so that he would die much quicker, believed Jesus was dead. But just to make sure, he took a spear and thrust it up under Jesus' ribcage and pierced the periocardial, periocardial sac around the heart of Jesus and outflowed a watery type substance and blood mixed together, but separate, which indicated Jesus was clearly dead. Thirdly, the Jewish leaders were worried about a fake resurrection. They were worried about that. Listen to what it says in Matthew 27, starting in verse 62. Now the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard unit? Go. Make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone, a Roman seal. Fact number next. The Romans hated Christianity and sought to eliminate it through extreme persecution. Another fact that's key. The Jews hated both Jesus and his followers, and they would do anything to eviscerate the Christian movement from the very start. Also, all but one of the disciples died horrible deaths, being martyred for their faith. And finally, the fact of Jesus' burial. Jesus was buried in the customary grave clothes of the time, which is a series of cemented wrappings so that the body was encased and made airtight to help preserve the body and to lessen the smell of decomposition. A decomposition. Those are facts. Now, based on those facts, there's a number of questions we should ask. Would everyone have gone 
to the wrong tune over and over. Now they want to tell you, who those who espouse this theory, is the first ones to the tomb were these women. They were emotional. They were distraught. They just seen someone who they loved greatly put through a brutal and torturous death. And they just didn't really realize where they're going and they went to the wrong tomb. And then they went and they brought the disciples there and they brought them to the same tomb they had seen. That was the wrong one. Well, that's not true. Now, it's true that those women may have been distraught. And they did go and report to Peter and John that the tomb was empty. But they didn't lead them to the tomb. Peter and John took off running, left the women far behind. They ran to the tomb. So they independently would have gone to the wrong tomb? Highly unlikely. All the, most of all the other disciples went to that tomb also so they could see whether it was really empty or not, whether the stone had been rolled away. But think about this. If they had gone to the wrong tomb and Jesus was still buried somewhere and here comes this Christianity, this new movement starting, which the Romans hated and the Jews hated even more, why didn't either the Romans or the Jewish leaders produce the body, put it on display, carry it through the streets of Jerusalem, proving there had been no resurrection and thereby aborting Christianity in its infancy? Well, they would have done that if they could have, but they couldn't because the tomb was in fact empty. You see, if either the Romans or the Jews had moved or hidden the body, they would have done the same thing to prove that there had been no resurrection, but they didn't, and that's because they couldn't. Now, if the disciples had somehow made it to the tomb, fought through that Roman guard unit of four well-trained legionnaires, and then moved the stone away and took off with Jesus' body, then they would have known that their claims of resurrection were a hoax. So why would they allow themselves separated by great geography and time, to be horribly martyred for a lie. All, all of them. Why would they do that? You know, some men will die for the truth, but men won't die for a lie. Now, if Jesus were still alive when he was buried, how could he resuscitate when encased in these burial wrappings? wouldn't they have killed him themselves, asphyxiated him, because it was airtight? Of course they would have. Jesus was dead when he was buried. But let's assume for a second that somehow he did resuscitate. How did he get out of those grave clothes? They didn't bury him with a knife inside. And those things were cemented and allowed to become hard after three days. How did he get out? Even if he had gotten out, how did he roll the stone away from inside? You can't roll that stone from the inside. It takes two or three men to do it from the outside. But you wouldn't be able to do it from the inside. And even if you did roll it away from the inside, now you have to overpower the armed Roman guard outside waiting. Then you walk several miles to where the disciples were, all on feet that had been ripped by the nail that he'd been pushing against to allow breathing having lost between two-thirds to three-quarters of the blood in his body, and you go and proclaim yourself savior of the world? I don't think so. Now let me tell you, if you were to study mass hallucinations, you would know that 500 people 
in mass, could not suffer a mass hallucination, and all see the same person who was supposed to be dead is now alive. Mass hallucinations do not work that way. You see, the only reasonable conclusion is that the tomb was occupied for three days and three days only. And thereafter, it was empty. Its occupant had left. Now, isn't that a wonderful kind of empty? That empty gives me hope and reassurance and salvation and an absolute promise that my Lord is coming back for me one day and I will be with Him forever in eternity. And we looked at three types of emptiness. I want to look at a fourth type. It's not of emptiness. It has to do with the emptiness of the spirit of a man. To consider this, we've got to consider the nature of man. Many liberal scholars contend that a man has only two parts, a body and a soul. Now, so sometimes that soul is referred to as his spirit, but they're really interchangeable or the same thing, those two terms. And a man only has only two parts. Conservative scholars, on the other hand, hold to the position that man is a triune being, just like his creator. His creator made him in their likeness and as they are, with a body, a soul, and a spirit. Progressive scholars say, no, that's not true. Nowhere in the scriptures does it ever say that. But they failed to read the fifth chapter of the book of First Thessalonians. Because in the 23rd verse, it says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something, that your spirit and soul and body pre-preserved. The conjunction used here in the Greek is the word chi, and it's a conjunction that brings two things together. But almost always, it is used, you would say, one, two, three, four, and five. The and goes between the second to last word and the last word. So one, two, three, four, and five. But if in Greek you wanted to emphasize the singularity importance of each item, you would say one and two and three and four and five. Here notice that those, that emphasis is put in this verse, your spirit and soul and body be preserved. Here, three different words are used for spirit, pneuma, for soul, asuke, and for body, soma. All three speaking of a special part of a man, the special part that God created. But unfortunately, the scripture teaches that every human being is born spiritually dead, their spirit being empty of life. And that's not a good emptiness. Blaise A. Pascal, a French mathematician, physicist, author, philosopher, inventor, the one who laid the foundation for modern theories of probability, was also quite spiritually inclined. And he studied this concept a great deal. And he stated the following as his conclusion. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, 
but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And until one is born again, his spirit remains empty. But if one is truly born again, the Holy Spirit enters into and indwells the man's spirit, and he is now spiritually alive and no longer empty in spirit. That's an emptiness in every human being. Praise be to God, He has prepared a way to where that emptiness can be filled. Finally, I want to talk about an emptiness in a born-again believer. As a foundation for this discussion, I want us to look at Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, which says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now I have to tell you, I've studied this passage a great deal. I've even meditated on it. And I used to think there are two key words that we need to understand. The first one is the Hebrew word chafetz, and chafetz means delight, pleasure, desire, longing. We are to long for the law of the Lord. We are to take great pleasure. It should be something that brings us delight. The second word that I've always considered to be important is this word meditates. And it's a little harder to understand. The Hebrew word hagah means to muse or mutter, meditate, devise, plot, or speak. In English, the standard definition for this word is to think deeply and continuously about something. For the Christian, they should understand this form of meditation means remaining in the presence of God and pondering each truth He reveals about Himself and His Word until it becomes real and personal in your life. This is not a quick process, but a slow process. It takes time. Now, as I looked at this passage, this time, something jumped out at me. It's a little word. It's the word but. But is, in English, is part of the general set of conjunctions, but it's really not conjunctive. It is disjunctive. It is not a, a word like and that brings two things together and makes them the part of the same. Instead, it creates a contrast or a disjunction between the two concepts. And if you look at that, that doesn't seem right. David, in this psalm, is saying the man he's talking about does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the path of the sinners, and does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. But, that is disjunctive to that, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates both day and night. Those two concepts should not be disjunctive, it appears to me. They should be together. They should be conjunctive. So I looked at this little word, but, in the Hebrew passage, and I found that it wasn't one word. It was two. One of those words is the Hebrew word, im, and it means if. If. This word, if, carries the idea of potentiality. What it's saying when you apply it to this passage is, a man will not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the paths of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. If his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. 
if you do this, then this will happen. It's potential, but we have to understand what the potential is there for. The second word that is uh, conjunctive here is the word chi, and that means because. Because. Because speaks of effect, and it's saying this man who David is talking about will not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He will not stand in the path of sinners. He will not sit in the seat of the scoffers because his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. You see, this passage teaches us that righteous living is a result of delighting in God's word and meditating on it. There are many believers who have an intellectual knowledge of God and his word, but it never translates into obedience as described in Psalm 1. When you meditate on the Holy Scriptures, the truth of God's word moves from your head into your heart, and the result is a loving obedience. Remember what David wrote again in Psalm 119.11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now I want you to look at that. That word translated treasure is safan. And safan can mean to hide as it's translated in the King James Version or to treasure or store up as it's translated in the New American Standard. And in fact, both of those meanings apply to this word in this context. What David is saying this word is so valuable to me, I'm going to hide it someplace where no one can find it. That is in my heart. Now, why is he doing that? It's very simple. So that he won't sin against God. It's the same relationship. If the word of God is implanted and stored in your heart, it will enable you to sin less. Obviously, you won't be perfect because you're still human, but you will sin less. That's what this is all about. When you have learned God's word in your mind, but not your heart, it means that you have learned the principles and concepts and doctrines of God, but you've not come to know God on a personal level. You see, you can refuse to follow a principle, reject a concept, or challenge a, a doctrine, but it's much more difficult to ignore a person. You can have Scripture filling your mind and still sin against God regularly. Those who can recite long passages from the Bible still many times live ungodly lives. However, you cannot fill your heart with God's Word and continue to sin against God. The question is, what is the condition of your heart in relation to God's Word? Is it full or is it empty? Or is it partially full? Then it needs to be completed. You see, when God's truth is allowed to touch the deepest parts of your soul, the Holy Spirit will transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. If you want your soul to be filled and not empty, don't just read your Bible. Don't just listen to people talking about it. Don't just go to studies. Meditate on God's Word and ask Him to fill your heart with it. Then... When that happens, you can be assured that you will become a man or a woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor 
one who stands in the path of sinners, nor one who sits in the seat of scoffers. I've lived empty and full, or at least partially full, and I can tell you there's no comparison. Although I still need to keep filling my soul, and I'm going to advise you to do the same thing. Memorize God's Word, meditate on it, and ask Him to fill your soul and remove the emptiness. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank You for this time that we could be together. I thank You for this time that we could share these concepts together. It is so important to be able to understand these provisions of God's Word. The hope that comes from some forms of emptiness. The dejection that can come from others. And the way to satisfy the emptiness of our spirit and then the emptiness of our soul. Pray that we'll come to understand these things. Thank you for communicating to us. Help us to learn them well enough that we can share them with others, as Paul has instructed us to do in 2 Timothy 2.2. I pray these things, Father, in the name and authority of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.